I'm Rick Ward, founder of Orbit's Edge, a company that provides high-power compute in orbit. I'm Alistair Funge, space policy and operations engineer. Hi, I'm Raphael Rodkin, founder of E2MC Space Ventures. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. To do that, you should have some foundational rules about how we make rules. Right now, when we look at space activities, we'll go, well, where do we make rules at? Well, we can make them at COPUS, but we can also make them at the national level, or we could not make any rules at all, or we could leave it up to the operators to do whatever they think is best. And there's no standard for how to develop rules. Time for another episode of the Cold Star Project. I am here with Christopher Johnson of the Secure World Foundation. This is his second appearance. Thanks for being here. Uh, I... I was just talking to you right before we hit the record button and your, your talk with uh, me last time was the first space law policy discussion that I had ever had and there was a lot to learn. Uh, and I, you know, I've got a whole series now of, uh, I don't know, nine or 10 or whatever it is, um, space law uh, discussions on, on um, YouTube. And I still hold up your discussion as like, look folks, if you've never run into this before, because I talk to a lot of people who don't know the space industry, they kind of giggle when they hear space law, right? They're like, that's a thing? Oh, yeah. I know more space yeah. lawyers than I do engineers. <laughs> uh, you know, but that is a great place to start. If, uh, if you don't know anything about the space law field and you want to get a feel for the outer space treaties and uh, what has gone on before Chris's uh, topic, you know, discussion there is a great introduction. Um, what I really wanted you back on for today, Christopher, was uh, obviously we've had COVID, we've had a complete shift. Uh, we were discussing that too about how it slowed everything down and kind of allowed everybody to sort of formulate policy rather than uh, race around from conference to conference, you know, trying to meet more people and that. You've been running these um, salons and, and getting a lot of public input, I'll call it that. Uh, I've seen more actors and administrators and that government agency folks in there, but also you've got a ton of input from uh, just regular people who are interested in the space industry. And I think that's done a lot to get awareness up of uh, some of these issues. So I wanna kind of talk our way through what that process has been like, what the engagement has been like, and uh, what we need to do going forward. Now that you've had this experience and seen a little bit about what works, what hasn't worked maybe so well, um, what you do differently going forward. So let, let's begin with this then. What is, I guess, the, the biggest takeaway that you got uh, from running those salons? Hmm. I mean, what we're trying to do with those salons is break down silos and connect stakeholders. And the more that we do it, the more I realize, so the, this is the Moon Dialogues research salons. And the more that we do it, the more we realize that there are so many different stakeholders in lunar activities and so many different viewpoints. Um, and, and, you know, uh, you know, uh, early on we thought how many of these could we actually even really do? Um, and it's, it, we're finding that just even a concise topic is so much to explore. The, the idea about say due regard, Article 9, due regard. States shall uh, give due regard to the corresponding interests of other states in the exploration and use of outer space. That due regard, and okay, fine, the, also the, the principle of cooperation and mutual assistance that exists uh, in Article 9. How, what do those things mean in the context of lunar activities? 
Well, guess what? It really depends on what you're wanting to do. Um, and they, they may be different depending on the, the stakeholder themselves, a commercial actor, a scientific actor, a national space agency seeking prestige. Um, they, you know, they depend on the actor, they depend on the activity. And as we, you know, just that one obligation of paying due regard, um, we don't really know what it means truly. We know that it means something, but it doesn't mean absolute regard or utter regard or utmost regard, but a due amount, a due, a quantum, a due quantum, which is owed, uh, a bit like, you know, due process or something else, which is some amount, which is owed. Um, even just that one discrete subtopic in lunar activities, lunar policy and governance, gosh, we could do a number of, uh, a number of webinars and, and a number of like, you know, stakeholder engagements to really see first all the, the scientific findings and data that we need to take into account. So early on, you know, we, we had a, a research salon um, with Phil Metzger who spoke about uh, lunar dust. Something that I was not, uh, not really aware of too much. And it turns out that that is a major factor in lunar governance and, and in coordination. And so I've learned so much from these lunar salons and we're just going to have to continue doing them. And we know that we're going to, we're, we're going to learn more. And the process of doing it means that we're slowly becoming real experts in, um, in, in how, what lunar policy is going to look like. Hmm. Okay. Well, that, and that's, that's super exciting because you've got all these uh, definitions or proto definitions maybe floating around yeah, out there probably, and, yeah. <laughs> and it's like well, wait yeah, a minute definitely. we we have to have a solid base of mutual understanding to proceed uh and then you run into these unexpected things like you just saying that now about the lunar dust right and and, and hmm. phil talking uh i know all these isru lunar mining, Mars mining folks, and we've talked about lunar dust, and I know a fair amount about it, but I have never thought about the due regard thing that you made the connection with right now in my head about, like, uh, say you've got beachfront property, and you don't want guys with speedboats roaring by and creating waves that erode the beach and that kind of thing. And, and I suddenly had this image of a, a thing like that happening, right, on the moon, where somebody is blasting up all this very aggressive dust that can go and shred through seals and things like that and break down equipment very quickly and blasting it over there at the Chinese or something. Like that, you know? yeah. and, 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 you know, another party who would be very upset about it. So that you, you might think uh, from the outside looking, you know, it's just a bunch of guys sitting around talking, but just in this discussion, you've created a, a realization, right? Of something that I hadn't yeah. thought of before. So imagine what's going on in all these minds uh, going out there and, and connecting. Um, and, and thanks to Zoom you know, for, for being a, a platform that could host yeah. something like this. Because if we didn't have this, I don't know what we'd be using. Um, one thing that I noticed early on, and I, and I messaged you about this, um, 
was that you seem to be very good at getting public engagement, right? Uh, just regular folks who, you know, um, members of the public who are, who are curious or in the field, uh, getting education, that kind of thing. Um, and I remember a couple times looking around going, okay, where are the actors or the, the agency people, the regulatory people? Uh, and then the very next thing you had uh, Jim Bridenstine on there and I was like, okay, I'll shut up now, right? Um, but have you seen in, in terms of <laughs> Zoom meetings and that, any, any differences in the platforms that they'll go on? Um, and the behavior and the outcomes, it, comparing public engagement versus that government agency or, or, or operational actor uh, perspective? Um, not too much. I mean, it's, it is that, you know, the folks who are pushing for the, some of these initiatives, the actual actors themselves, they do realize that they need broad stakeholder engagement, including mm -hmm. engagement with the public. So, um, something like this Moon Dialogues Research Salon, it's open to anyone to attend and, and participate in. And we make it that way because when decisions are made later in the, uh, when decisions are taken, when stances are taken, we need to have broad engagement earlier on and that type of buy-in. So if people are generally aware of all the issues and if you are interested in lunar activities and you hear about us or you hear about um, you know, other people who are hosting discussions on lunar activities, then you know what the topics are. And so you're not surprised if you hear that we're going to need some type of even rudimentary governance framework, um, say to mitigate the, the dangerous effects, the deleterious destabilizing effects of, of say dust. Uh, and, and the need for landing pads. These things won't seem strange or alien to you. They'll say, oh, you'll, you'll say these, these concerns are generally in the zeitgeist out there, in the lunar policy realm, these things are being discussed. Why? Because we did that engagement, that broad engagement. And that broad engagement attracts folks from industry, folks from agencies, folks from academia, and crucially, the next generation of people the people who will be working at agencies and commercial industries not five years from now but 10 years from now 20 years from now um you know this is a long time scale lunar lunar activities is a long time scale so we need everyone okay i'm gonna ask the toughest question probably <laughs> that i'm able to ask what do you have to say to uh i'm not going to call anybody out specifically but uh venture capitalists let's say or investors who say we don't have time to figure out uh treaties and and uh, new agreements and that kind of thing we need to just blast forward and uh, get the operators out there i mean after all in the old west uh, going out to California and doing mining uh, for gold, they had their own court systems and their own norms and that kind of thing. Um, well, I think your, uh, your speedboat example is an excellent example. So if you have a situation where everyone is given absolute freedom, it really won't be too long until some, the exercise of someone's freedom uh, has a negative consequence to someone else and impinges on their freedom. So if we have absolute freedom or a lack of rules in lunar activities, it may uh, you know, be very helpful right at the beginning when you say, well, no one's stopping us, we can do whatever we want. But very shortly thereafter, maybe when the second person goes there, um, you know, 
shortly thereafter, there will be, uh, it, it's easy to imagine instances where some, the exercise of someone's freedom affects the, the second actor's freedom. And at that point, do they just look at each other and say, well, we have no rules. Uh, looks like I'll do what I can and you can do what you can. And we go back to a state of um, archaic governance, uh, a state of anarchy uh, that, that would rely on Mike's might makes right or do whatever you can until someone stops you. That's actually that state of anarchy, that state of pure freedom is less efficient in fostering development than a system where there is a governance regime which is structured in a way which will foster development. So having some rules is better than absolute no rules, especially if you want to have a productive use of any environment and a cooperative, peaceful uh, environment. It's like, that's not specific to the space domain, that's specific to any sphere where there are multiple actors, whether it's, um, yeah, you can look anywhere across history or, or current relations or, and any, you know, technological sphere, economic sphere, you know that some rules, that system will be more ordered and outcomes will be better for actors than a system with no rules. All right. So then the follow on question to that is how long do you give it? Right. How long do you say, okay, you know, you've got until X time to figure this out uh, so that we can get up there and operate uh, with some sort of sanity other than, uh, you know, going up there and, and waiting for other people to start sabotaging or spray painting or uh, pulling apart people's yeah. habitats or something like that. Well, I'll say, you know, the way that uh, you know, let's be realistic about these things. The way these discussions happen now is the way they will happen in the future. Meaning there will be in some initiatives which are successful and some which are unsuccessful at the international, national, uh, and contractual level. There will be bottom-up uh, approaches where actors get together to coordinate amongst themselves. And there will be issues which are addressed at the contractual level between operators in their actual contracts. Like if you are a subcontractor or if you supply these parts, these are the rules you, you will adhere to. They may just be standards. At the same time, there will be initiatives which may be successful and may be unsuccessful at the international level. So a, um, this is, I would call it a disorganized or um, other people would call it a multipolar approach to governance. And that's the way it happens now. That's the way it's going to happen in the future. So we, you know, we can expect new initiatives at the UN and also new, new developments from commercial actors. And we'll see what sticks. We'll see mm. what holds. We'll see what's, what is successful. If we have a COPUS where, which is very organized and focused and efficient, they may be able to develop norms uh, or, or they new norms may not come from the international system. Um, is it a race to develop norms? I wouldn't say so. Um, and, and it is kind of like that, that view, whoever does the activity first sets the rules, that there is some truth to that, but that is certainly not a principle of law or of international governance that those who do the activity set the rules. That's mm -hmm. not a principle. Um, so that's, you know, that, I think that's a realistic answer. Uh, which is probably unsatisfactory for people at all, uh, all various stakeholders. But the answer is 
uh, multipolar governance <laughs> is how things happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I've been a big believer in that and I actually say it on, on the cold star website, um, of that, that multi-layer input can come from any level. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've seen you post that, uh, in response to someone sort of, hey, that's a great idea, but the UN committee at the top will never pass it, for example. Um, and in contrast to that, I really like the idea of prime contractors dictating uh, to their, their subcontractors, here's your operating agreement, this is how you need to behave. Um, and so, the, and there isn't even a law there, it's just sort of understood, right? Uh, and, and now yeah. you're in this contract. So that sounds like a, and if it's too draconian, maybe nobody will want to do business with that company. Right? So eventually, yeah. um, it's but you said you said how uh, how long do we wait? How long is too yeah. long? That's yeah. I mean I, I'm not certain if I answered your question. Hmm. Your question was how long do we wait? And honestly, um, some commercial actors, uh, I, and I think the best example is Moon Express, where they said we want to do things on the moon. We're a private company. And, you know, they knew that international law exists. Bob Richards helped found, uh, you know, ISU. He was one of the funders of ISU and, and knows that space law is a topic. He voluntarily went to regulators and say, uh, I don't know what the rules are. I don't know who to ask for permission to do this, but I want permission to do this. I don't want to do this in the absence or vacuum of, of any regulator because I know that that could end up bad for me. So he took it upon himself to go, let's go find someone who can approve this in a enhanced payload review. Mm. And, and, and I think that that is, your question is how long, or how long do we wait? It's, you know, you shouldn't be investing in space and you shouldn't be undertaking these activities unless you have clearance from a government that allow, that, that says we've looked at your activity, your proposed activity, and we're, we let you do it because mm. If you go without permission, um, then you're really triggering uh, at least one state's uh, international responsibility and liability. And that's just basic Article mm -hmm. 6 of the Outer Space Treaty. Right. Some state is responsible. Right, right. Yeah, Chris Dodd of Manstat and, and ISU uh, just recently posted a LinkedIn article about what's the most difficult thing in space and it's getting permission uh, to do anything. So that's, yeah. that kind of lines up pretty well there. Um, in your opinion, like in things like uh, the orbital cleanup and that kind of thing, which, which do you think is more needed, the carrot or the stick? Which is the, the best end of the problem to start uh, you know, creating incentives or to create punishments uh, to get the behavior that we want? That's really a question for, I would say, an economist, maybe perhaps even a behavioral <laughs> economist. Uh, but say if we want to clean up debris, hmm. so, so that's the, that's the, proposed, the, the considered activity in this question. Um, uh, perhaps a mix of both. And, um, you know, you want the, the carrot, what would the carrot be in that situation? It is allowing actors to reap benefits from their debris cleanup activities. So having rules in place, such as national salvage, space debris salvage rules, which we don't have right now in the US, that would allow them to clean up debris and use that for any purpose they want or clean up debris and they get to be the owner and they can do whatever they want with it, including manufacturing in space or um, deorbiting it or selling their deorbit services. So giving them 
through the creation of new laws, uh, an incentive and to foster that commercial activity. That could be, you know, meanwhile, or juxtaposed with that, it would be some type of stick, which is the threat of some type of enforcement or negative consequences of creating new debris, um, really for any reason. Or let's say excessive debris, because all space launches create some modicum of debris. Um, and maybe it's, maybe it's the best, although um, I, would, I would leave it, I would love to hear from, say, some economists who can look at analogous regimes and say, you know, how we cleaned up debris or how we clean, cleaned up the pollution in other domains was through this mechanism, this market-based mechanism. And then we would see if we can transpose those, those incentives to the space domain. Right, because there's been a lot of environmental cleanup in, in cities or in rivers, waterways, that kind of thing, uh, where you, know, you can think of in the 70s, right? It's horrible and the air pollution is bad. Yeah. And then by now it's, uh, it's so much better. And how did they, I mean, they had the EPA, but I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know how those carrots or sticks work either. I know um, satellite insurance is a potential mechanism uh, for, for doing something about it. The uh, insurance guys I've talked to haven't wanted to lower their rates, but <laughs> you're okay with raising them if, uh, if somebody was a bad actor. So, well, I mean, you know, let me think for metal, for aluminum, you know, uh, they put, and glass, they put deposits on it. So if you want to mm -hmm. purchase pop, you want to, I'm in the Midwest, yeah. you want to purchase yeah. pop, or for Southerners, they're going to purchase soda. Um, they put, you know, a deposit on it, meaning that it, the cost for the buyer increases a little bit, but they're, it's, it's a deposit, they're allowed to get that back. Um, that's just a, that's a incentive, which is created in law based on the market. Um, which is, you know, was feasible and was successful. Um, and it's not like we could place, you know, deposits on, on uh, satellites, but there's, you know, some type of maybe rationale for placing a small cost on a user or an operator at the beginning of an activity, <clears throat> which would be refunded to them hmm. or refunded to someone uh, at the end of that activity, and it may be it, that may be tied to salvage. I don't know. I'm just kind of brainstorming on. Mm -hmm. Well, on yeah, that, I, I think that's not a bad place to start because who's to say the operator is going to exist ten years or twenty years or whatever? You know, at the, at the end of the lifetime of the satellite, for example, right? Uh, and what if they don't? Then there's nobody there to clean it up, and now it's the nation's responsibility, right? So I kind of like that yeah. paying the deposit first. Uh, I've seen, I think, in solar panel farms, um, a bond deposit at the beginning uh, to cover the cost of environmental cleanup or something if there's a problem. And then at the end of the project lifetime, they get their money back uh, and some private company kind of runs that thing. So it, it, it's possible to do that. Um, and yeah, I like you could have a word reaching yeah. in from different areas and seeing, okay, are there any analogs that we can we can pull over here? That's the key. That's what we absolutely must mm -hmm. do. I think that you know it, you could set up a regime where if you receive a license to a frequency allocation from government A, mm -hmm. then any commercial actor who wants to remove debris um, of that is licensed by government A, you know, it's in the same, it's in the same regime. So if the FCC gives you your license, well then the FCC can also grant uh, end of life licenses to remove debris for any commercial actors because it's like in the same system. And I, I say all this only because the, the problem is 
multiple states. The problem mm. is removing debris, which may be the responsibility of a different national, which yeah, a, a different state. Um, so, I mean, that type of uh, keeping debris on a, a like n the nationality of, of a of the space debris doesn't change. That that would significantly reduce some of the international responsibility liability concerns. Um, and that's just like one hurdle that would have to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Hey, this is Jason Canigan from Cold Star Tech. Thanks for listening in. I'm going to quickly interrupt the interview to talk about a new course I am offering for space startup founders. If you're a space startup founder and eventually you're looking at getting invested in, getting some of that good old venture capital pouring into the system, uh, then you're going to need this because I have done tons of one-on-one -on -one calls with space founders and discovered several consistent things that are just plain missing from their businesses. And uh, these things are so important that every time a VC looks at your pitch, they're going to say, nope, no thanks, bye-bye. And so if you want to avoid that problem from happening and actually get to the promised land of being funded, then sign up. All you have to do is go to this address and drop in your email and sign up for it. It's coldstartech.com SBM. That is for info about the course and the first part of it uh, will be given to you as it comes out. So go check that out. Do it now before you forget <laughs> if you're a space founder. And now let's get back to the interview. So with, with kind of, I'm not going to call it a pause, but with the slight slowdown <laughs> of crazy stuff coming at you and having to make mm. decisions and do work and meet people and all that stuff. Um, what, what areas, uh, like uh, outer space treaty areas, have you seen where you're like, oh, that needs to be updated? Which areas have stood out to you as being in need of, uh, of modernizing? This is, I mean, this is the key question. Is what do we need to tackle first? And, you know, uh, there's a lot of discussion on space resources and how we can use space resources. But frankly, there's more press and concerns in what we call gaps or silences or the Latin term lacuna, um, you know, gaps in the space law regime. And these are areas where space law doesn't give a good enough answer to whether we can, whether we can do this activity. And, uh, you know, crucially it is that space debris, can we remove space debris? What is the liability concerns for space debris? What are the prohibitions on the creation of space debris? Um, whether in civil or military contexts. The, uh, the international space law regime is, um, you know, under specific on the area of space debris, but, and so there's, and there's so many questions that we, that, and clarities that need to be developed at the international level for space debris. So maybe salvage rights can exist on the national level, um, but they should have some type of international coordination. Uh, in terms of creation of debris, this is also, I think, something that needs to be addressed on the international level, including in the context of anti-satellite testing, um, in, in, even in, in times of peacetime and in times of armed con international armed conflict, whether it is always per whether it is permissible to create debris, because um, the, the international law is just silent on that issue. So I think that's more pressing than, say, space resources, and COPE was focusing on the a new treaty for you know, uh, space mineral resource treaty, something like that. I, I think that that's something that is not as pressing as space debris. Um, you know, what else could we look at? You can look at, all right, what, what pops into my head is um, uh, uh, um, planetary defense. 
mm -hmm. uh, the threat from asteroids and comets. So, uh, we do have at the international level uh, a decently efficient, decently working uh, coordination for planetary defense, whether that's um, the IOWAN, International Asteroid Warning Network, uh, which is the, you know, um, the, the warning network between space agencies and observatories, which are sharing data on uh, threatening uh, near-Earth objects, NEOs, whether asteroids or comets. And then the same page, Space Mission Planning and Analysis Group, which would be the coordinating mechanism for a mission to deflect or divert or destroy an asteroid. So we have some, we, we have some rudimentary uh, um, mechanisms for planetary defense, but there's still, I would say, unanswered questions in space law about, you know, well, kind of dealing with responsibility and liability or an obligation to act if your state sees a threatening near-Earth object, is there an obligation to warn other states? Is there, is there a further obligation to act, to mount a mission to uh, deflect or destroy the asteroid? Um, what are the rules for if we deflect an asteroid or we attempt a deflection and it fails? Hmm. What if we attempt to deflect and it fails and causes even more destruction than was envisioned? Like we, we make the situation worse. Do, uh, are, is there liability for that? Or is it just, well, we tried our best. We tried our best efforts to, to, to deflect this asteroid to the best of our knowledge, the best of our capabilities and technology. And, and it, we were not good enough, but we tried to save, you know, uh, tried to save the situation. Is there liability which accrues from that? And, and then in the most extreme instances of a very large near-Earth object, uh, is it, the question is open whether it is permissible to use a nuclear explosive device to destroy that asteroid or comet. So there should be some type of international discussion which makes it certain and is, it, is a consensus view that in a extreme emergency of planetary defense, the use of a nuclear explosive device is in fact lawful, legal, and permissible, as opposed to that use being impermissible or prohibited because it's a nuclear weapon and nuclear weapons are prohibited by Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty. So those are a number of questions that need to be addressed uh, at the international legal level in the context of planetary defense. So I've dealt with space debris and I've dealt with, um, I've dealt with uh, asteroids and, and planetary defense. You know, I think that there's other, like, you know, what we do in the, in the moon dialogues is address questions about uh, lunar governance, lunar policy. And I think that there are, those are uh, slightly further along uh, into the future, but they are real questions. And getting back to the due regard, duties of cooperation and mutual assistance, safety zones, what is a safety zone, protection of heritage sites, um, whether, you know, what really is the full ex extent of the prohibition on military presence on the moon. Um, the second paragraph of Article 4, the Outer Space Treaty, almost completely demilitarizes the moon. Um, but what are the, f the furthest limits of that? What does that actually really mean? Could Space Force go to the moon to enforce a safety zone? Um, there's a lot of open legal questions dealing with the moon, I would say. Mm-hmm. And, and now I'm thinking about things like, uh, like doctor liability, 
medical doctor liability, right? Uh, what if you don't want to get punished by that? Uh, now you're responsible for touching the patient thing, right? With uh, trying to stop an asteroid from hitting the earth and it doesn't work and you create a mess. Uh, yeah. So you just don't do it in the first place, right? I'm not exactly. Touch it. Sorry. Yeah, don't, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, that's we scary. don't want to create that. We right. don't want to create that type of. I mean, so that there is like a you know kind of a bystander doctrine where if you're if you're an average person and you're walking down the street and see you see someone in distress, you are under no pre-existing obligation to come to their aid. Hmm. But should you come to their aid, and you put them in a worse off position, you could be liable for for assisting someone and actually putting them in a worse off position. And if you have specialized knowledge, like you are a doctor uh, or, a, or an EMT, and uh, you may be held to a higher standard of care. So those are principles that we could look at for something like planetary defense, but they should be scrutinized as to whether they would actually assist in planetary defense, or as you suggested, have a freezing effect on planetary mm. defense, where someone says, well, I won't come to the aid, I won't take action, because by taking action, I could expose myself to potential liability if, I, if what I do isn't perfectly successful. Mm -hmm. So we don't wanna create that type of regime. Right, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's that, or there's Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama, which began with an asteroid hitting uh, the Earth and killing a bunch of people because nobody was looking, <laughs> nobody was watching. <laughs> so that's quite a rage there. And then the other thing I was thinking about uh, with the lunar construction thing, which I've never thought of before, is uh, if I if I am on a lake shore and I have a lake shore property and an island, I can't just build a uh, bridge to that island because it'll block the motorboat access or the boating access of everybody else who's using that lake as well. Um, and, and I'm just thinking about what kind of an effect that would have on, uh, on lunar construction. And yeah. I, cause I've always imagined like, okay, the Chinese are going to go over here. These guys are going to go over there. Those guys, you know, and they'll pick kind of spots that are separated, but what happens when they start encroaching on each other? We see this with municipalities growing towards each other and then something has to happen when they end up uh, touching each other. So, Hmm, there's, there's more here yeah. than I was even thinking. Yeah. Of. Wow. And you have to have, you have to have first order rules about mm -hmm. you know exactly what people's rights and obligations are but we don't and, and you know to do that you should have some foundational rules about how we make rules mm. and right now when we look at space activities we'll go well where do we make rules at well we can make them at copus but we can also make them at the national level or we could not make any rules at all or we could leave it up to the operators to do whatever they think is best and and there's no standard for how to develop rules. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, you know, um, there are these scenarios which we can envision on the moon, mm -hmm. whether it is the use of resources, um, you know, or the, the placement of facilities and installations that are in rivalrous circumstances, say at a Shackleton crater at a, a peak of eternal light at the lunar South Pole or North Pole or on the far side of the moon in a radio quiet zone where, um, you know, those are attractive locations. And, uh, you know, if a state was to proclaim a safety zone for one of those locations, well, can they proclaim a safety zone unilaterally? meaning they just say, this is our safety zone, that's it. Or 
uh, do safety zones need to be approved by COPUS or by other stakeholders? Can they be objected to? And the, uh, the, ca the characteristics of a safety zone, are they merely, you can't come within a certain radius or are they more behavioral? Meaning, okay, you can come within this certain radius so long as you tell us first or so long as you behave in a certain fashion such as to not kick up dust. So are they, are they uh, physical? Are they behavioral? Uh, and also, are they temporal? Meaning, do they last forever, or do they last for five years, or do they last for so long as the activity is being undertaken, because it's a mining facility? Um, none of those things are, are settled at this point. And frankly, they're going to have to depend on the proposed activity. And, and also, so that they are done in a way which doesn't prejudice the rights of other real um, lunar actors, and not merely theoretical future actors or people who don't have a real interest in lunar activities. Um, and I, I make that last point because, you know, we talk in property law about interests and vested interests and whether, you know, how your interest vests or is your interest in, in a, or your right merely theoretical or at some point off in the future. Like I may go to the moon 50 years from now. So whatever you do next year cannot infringe upon what I may be planning to do 50 years from now. That discussion has to be also faced, that, that issue has to be faced, where, um, you know, you cannot be held, your, your freedom to do things on the moon cannot be held hostage to everyone else's even theoretical interest at some point in the future, because we do want to have a productive and efficient use of the moon. Um, and, you know, I point out, I'd like to see these things happen in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for my entire space career, um, you know, America has had, has retitled the, retired the shuttle program in 2011. And, you know, we've not had uh, American human launch capacity for 10 years, coming up on 10 years. And so I do want to see these things happen in my lifetime. Um, and, and to do that, we do have to be bold and ambitious and do some bold things in space. Um, but we have to also, weighing against that is have that longer time frame of thinking, not just in short-term interests, but weighing and in incorporating long-term interests and values into our decision-making, making sure that what we do next year and five years from now honestly does not prejudice or hurt or freeze or, um, or prevent things that we'd like to do 20 years or 50 years from now. And that's crucial, taking in the long-term interests. Hmm. I, I really am interested in this, how do we make the rules uh, in, a, in a timely way? Uh, and I, you know, a couple different structures I could think of right away are the municipal model where you've got an elected council with a mayor and an independent staff who's doing things, right? Uh, and then maybe a city manager, right? Imagine that as a, as a moon management structure. Um, contrast that with a franchise council, which has a very different sort of shape to it where you've got a, a central body and then these sort of franchisees that get together and maybe elect members to represent them. Uh, I, I've even heard, uh, 
like a sports team conference, Eastern versus Western conference or something like that. Right. Uh, and that could lead yeah. to uh, some, some different. I haven't thought of these things. Yeah. I mean, so how do you, so let's look at the, what Artemis Accords does. Mm -hmm. And because that's basically, you know, one actor, NASA, mm -hmm. one company, uh, one country, I'm sorry, saying we're going to do these things in the moon. If you'd like to partner with us, here's our values. You have to agree to these things. And that, and that seems to be um, like one method. I don't know what, what analogy you would propose, you'd mm. compare that to, but that is like, we're, we're gonna take it upon ourselves to promulgate and socialize our values. And if you wanna partner with us, um, here's, here's the, the, the basic fundamental values and, and, um, and norms that we're going to be using on the moon. And, and, and that seems to be one approach that is, of course, yes, driven by one state and its partners and not subject to referendum or veto by COPUS or the international community. Um, and that's because I think NASA does have um, an ambitious timeline and wants to do these things as soon as it can, as opposed to when the rest of the international community signs off on it. Um, There'll be there. There's we've already seen some type of questioning and, and pushback against those accords, but I, they're firmly couched in international space law, um, at least for most of them. And then the other things I think address what I was speaking about earlier, where there's frankly silences and gaps and gray areas in space law, but where interests and basic norms and practices have built up, like the the requirements on interoperability or transparency sh uh, sharing with the, the international scientific community. Um, those are not say required by space law, but they, they put it in there. All right. Okay. Let's finish up with this. You've got a three day summit starting tomorrow, which will be September 9th. Um, what are you expecting to accomplish and, and have as outcomes from that? Well, so I'm doing two things at the at the Summit for Space Sustainability, although we do, we are going to be having a number of different um, panels and mm -hmm. topics, everything from, you know, radio frequency interference topics or spectrum and um, to space force to international arms control um, to incentivizing behavior. Um, I will, you know, the panel that I'm running is specifically looking at the moon and lunar governance. Uh, it will have uh, both, uh, you know, let me think, it has NASA, Blue Origin, and then academics um, and operators. So, um, yeah, it's going to be focusing specifically on the moon, saying this is what the things that we'd like to do on the moon. Do we have sufficient law? And if we don't have sufficient law, what actually do we need to settle in the short term? So how do we, you know, what are the rules that we need to write now that serve us now and are um, uh, sturdy enough to last for uh, the long term, and also comply with international law, and and are sustainable enough that other people they're sustainable enough in the sense that they're ethical and they're negotiated, and uh, you know the the rest of the world would would also agree and adhere to them. Um, so there's one panel specific on the moon, and then I'll be doing an interactive session in no way on, about the moon, but about mega constellations, mega constellations and astronomy. And um, the, the, the issue that has arisen only in the past few years and is actually 
going to continue to be in the news, and that is the, the effects that mega constellations in low Earth orbit and medium Earth orbit, um, no, just low Earth orbit, have on the optical uh, astronomy community. And, um, you know, this is, a, this is a pressing issue. One, because um, these mega constellations, you know, affect the imaging that astronomers can do. And that, therefore, it adds this added cost to a, a astronomy. And is there ways around it? I think that both the both mega constellations and uh, astronomy are space activities. So I consider um, ground-based astronomy a, a space exploration and a space activity. And I make that point because to to firmly couch it in the Outer Space Treaty and international space law as an activity which is lawful, permitted, and recognized, and therefore owed a regard, owed a due regard. So those are both legitimate activities in, in the space realm that should be coordinated, that, that I believe should be, um, that the interest and the concerns between those two legitimate activities and uses need to be reconciled somehow. And we don't know the process for it. We don't know how we're gonna do it. Um, we don't know who needs to talk to who, who needs to change their behavior how that change, whether changing behavior can actually solve the problem, whether solving the, these issues are, is a technological solution that we should pursue, or straight up a behavioral solution, meaning you don't get a license, meaning you don't get to do these activities because of the, the effect that it has on others, and, or, you know, whether there's a, there's a technological solution that says, you know, you have to prove to us that your satellites will be of this magnitude or lower, that they will be, even in dark skies, not visible. We'll see. It's tough. It's not like you could tell the operators, hey, don't fly the satellites overhead during this time and this time so that the astronomers can see out. Uh, and I also don't see the operators paying for some sort of big camera satellite or something or radio telescope or something that points out uh, you know, and, and is accessible to uh, to the folks on the ground. So I don't, I have no idea what that looks like, but um, hmm. but the, again, due regard. That seems to be a central theme here of what we've talked about. So yeah, and that's uh, that's because we that's the only norm we have: due regard. And there hmm, are hmm. perhaps others in environmental law, the precautionary principle, um, that also I believe applies to the space domain, um, and. And whether governments have the will to act on it, whether governments will listen to the operators or listen to, say, the, the, the other constituents, including the scientific community, maybe because, you know, I think there's more astronomers than there are operators of mega constellations and, and satellite operators. So if you were, if, you know, we're going to have an interactive session and I think that there'll be more astronomers who attend that merely because there's just more of them and they're, mm -hmm. they're, um, and also they're interested in this topic and they want to have their voice heard. Awesome. Um, can folks who, I'm going to try and get this out like ASAP, can folks get in on the, uh, the summit um, like a day late or, or same day or whatever? Will tickets still be available or is it cut off on the Wednesday? 
I, I think tickets will still be available. And also there's, you know, we're an NGO. We're not trying to make money mm -hmm. off of this. We've already made any money that we put into it. We already have sponsors. So there are 100% discounts for government officials and mm -hmm. students. Um, and they can always certainly reach out to me or to, to um, the conference manager. Um, and if there's only certain, I would say even panels that they want to attend or mm -hmm. interactive sessions, like if they're keenly interested in mega constellations, they just want to attend uh, my session or the session that I'm assisting, um, that's also possible. I mean, we're as an NGO, which has all these concerns in space, uh, space sustainability and peaceful uses, we're trying to include as many stakeholders and listen to it and, and educate as many stakeholders as possible. So we try and make it as open as possible. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to the Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of the Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page, coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring, which is what we're all about. And uh, drop in your email address there and I will be able to do that for you. Make Space Boring is another little show that I run. It's a shorter format, quick interviews, and uh, news of the day, and sometimes an update of who I'm meeting and what I'm learning in the space field. It's on the same Cold Star Tech channel. Speaking of which, on the YouTube channel, I can do something I cannot do on the audio-only version, which is add playlists. And so there may be topic area playlists on the YouTube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks for listening and I look forward to talking to you soon.